Yeah. Um, one of the, I love that idea about empathy because so much of the world is not based on that, right? It's all about like how, how many likes did you, do you have? You know, how big is your community? How big, how big, how big? And if it's not big enough, you're not cool enough. Um, and I think we've kind of lost that, right? That, that idea that contribution is not about that. It's about something far greater than vanity or ego. It's about yes. doing something that, um, that ultimately is a decision, right? Because if you think about it, fear is a, uh, a reaction, but courage is a decision. How's it guys? So today we are joined by Michael Tagayas. Tagayas is a New York Times bestselling author and co-author of a whopping 29 books. Among his bestsellers are The Finest Hours, which is currently a Disney motion pictures film, which opened up in over 45 countries. Tagayas lectures across the USA on each of his book topics, really around leadership and his inspirational programs for business groups. So where does the story begin? Well, it begins in the winter of 1952, and a ferocious nor'easter, as they say, it is pounding New England with howling winds and 70-foot seas. Two oil tankers get caught in the violent storm off Cape Cod, its fury splitting the massive ships in two. Back on shore are four young Coast Guardsmen, who are given a suicide mission. I'll leave it at that. So without further ado, into Michael Tagayas. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another live edition of the uh, Matt Brown Show. Today, we are joined by the man, the legend, Michael Tugayas, all the way from Massachusetts in America. <laughs> got that right. You got it. <laughs> So, uh, Michael, uh, you've got an incredibly distinguished career as an author, uh, co-author of 29 books, a New York Times bestselling author. Your book, uh, The Finest Hours, has just been made, or just been made, recently been made into a full-blown movie uh, by Disney Motion Pictures. Um, and so you, you really do cover this idea of survival, like how do, how do human beings survive? And, and we're really going to get into all the meat and the potatoes around that. Um, but uh, just so everybody is aware, we are broadcasting this live uh, on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and on LinkedIn. If you are, wherever you, you're watching this, feel free to comment. We'll pick that up as a team, and then we'll make this as interactive and educational and powerful as possible. So um, so let's get on with the show. So Michael, um, Give us a bit of a headline for for our audience around the world who potentially don't know uh, who you are, what you're about, never heard of the book, The Finest Hours. Let's set this up for, for our audience. Well, so many of my books involve uh, survival at sea stories. Usually uh, I'm attracted to the stories where I say to myself, I could have never done what these people did. How, how in the world did they do it? And so the the finest hours was my bestseller because of the the movie, but I've done six others as well: uh, Overboard, Fatal Forecast, A Storm Too Soon, and they all have this uh, this theme of rescue and survival. And um, I spent a lot of time interviewing people, just like you do, and uh, that's how I that's how I get the story is just talk to the people that were there. So um, where does this curiosity come from, specifically about survival? Was that something that you, um, you know, that you, you, d you just stumbled into? Or was there an event that happened personally with you? Or uh, is there anything insightful around, around why you cover this specifically? Well, I, I am a, a boater myself, so I'm always out on the, the ocean. So I am interested in that. And... Um, when I was uh, much younger, age 20, I had a, a close call doing a stupid thing, going down a, a raging river uh, in a cheap little raft and went over a waterfall with a friend. And I, for a good half hour, I thought he was gone, drowned. I found him way down river. And so I, I try to learn from my mistakes. And when I interview these survivors who have gone through, you know, three, four day ordeals, I want to get inside their heads and find out how do they, how do they mentally do it? And on the flip side, how did the rescuers do it? Because oftentimes the rescuers are going out into a hurricane or in a storm. 
usually involving a rescue swimmer who has to drop down into these raging seas. And I'm always curious about how they pull off these amazing rescues. Yeah, cool. Well, let's talk about um, the finest hours. So this really is a story about one of the most dangerous rescue missions in the history of the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, and so I love survival stories. We've covered quite a few uh, on on this show from many different aspects. Uh, but um, but what I love about these particular stories is that they really do provide us with a sense of realism that we don't get by watching the movie. Do you understand? Uh, we don't. It's hard for us to connect to kind of the stuff that's like superhero related, but we can totally relate to four uh, Coast Guards who go out to battle these incredible seas to pull off one of the most amazing rescues in the history of the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, so... Could you give us a little bit of context? Like, where does the story begin? It was 1952. There were two ships, World War II, old ships, and there and so, and went wrong at sea. Why don't you take it from there? Okay. There was a, a winter blizzard. Here at New England, we call them nor'easters because the wind comes out of the nor'east on these low-pressure systems. And incredibly, the, the wind generated these big 40-foot waves, but these two oil tankers split in half on the same day, just 20 miles apart. So you had one of the largest rescues in Coast Guard history for, for any Coast Guard around the world. And uh, back in 1952, they weren't using helicopters for rescue. So this had to be done by uh, boat. And the Disney movie decided well, if we focus on two tankers, we're going to lose the audience, so let's focus on one. But the book, The Finest Hours, uh, tells the story of, of both. And uh, they split right in half, right down the middle. You know, if they had the bow and the stern on one side, crack it over your knee. That's how they split in half. And you had a total of 84 lives at stake. And uh, among the you know, so there's various rescues involved. It's a multiple two-day period. Not everybody makes it. Fourteen men lose their lives. But uh, the the piece Disney focused on was four Coast Guard men out, went out in a very small uh, vessel, a rescue boat, only 36 feet in length. So the waves are way bigger than the boat. And it, it is a remarkable story of how they pulled off they were able to rescue 32 out of the 33 men on one half of the sinking oil tanker. Uh, they, they got all but one. And the, the one they, they missed was because he was so large. His nickname was Tiny Myers. Okay, and well. when he jumped off the sinking ship and into the water, the men on the rescue boat didn't have the strength to pull him in. Sure. And they had a wait in that position too long while they were struggling with them. And a big wave came and slammed the rescue boat into the sinking oil tanker. And it crushed tiny mires in between. So that was the only one they lost out of that side of the ship. Uh, just incredible story. And I loved, I loved working with these rescuers because when I worked with them, uh, they've all passed away now, but when I worked with them, they were all in their 80s, and nobody had ever really uh, interviewed them. And I said, you're kidding me. Hmm. And uh, I had a ball interviewing these men. It was so much fun. See, you know, what you've just said there is fasc fascinating for me because um, it's, it's, it, doesn't it strike you as surreal that the, given the fact that we've covered here, that this was the, one of the greatest rescue missions in the history of the existence of the U.S. Coast Guard, that none of these men were interviewed. Do you understand? Like, like how is it that these stories just get, you know, consigned to the rack of history? And because, you know, they're so inspiring. They really do, do, do give us a perspective on our lives today. You know, I, for me personally, I got lucky that nobody had bothered to do that. Of course, when the event happened in 1952, there were a bunch of interviews, and I looked at all the old newspapers from the period. But after the excitement died down, uh, then they went, you know, into obscurity. And uh, then I called them up out of the blue. And uh, the lead, the lead rescuer, Bernie Weber, he was played by Chris Pine in the movie. He um, 
he was very reluctant to talk about it. He said, I don't want to rehash this. My life was more than just this one rescue. Nobody will read this book. And I had to I had to call him multiple times and send him some of my prior books to say, look, you know, I am going to make sure I do it accurately and you're going to get a chance to correct any errors I make. And uh, finally, he relented. And uh, I'm so glad on that particular book I was persistent with him. Mm. Did you, you know, you mentioned something earlier that's really important. Uh, you said, you know, so much of today is about superheroes and yeah. all that. And these guys were the opposite. They were scared to death, but they had their orders. And what's interesting is, you know, how do you perform at a high level despite fear and despite being afraid and in in Bernie's case, he said, I thought it was a suicide mission. He said, I never dreamed we'd rescue anybody. Well, this is it, right? So I'm so glad you said that because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you really um, was if you think about Marvel, right? And like, you know, the Avengers, you have like Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and like all these kind of heroes. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's one idea of what a hero is, right? And, and you know, we can get into well, what actually makes somebody a, a true hero today. Um, and so if you think about these four men and so many other countless stories of pe- like that we'll never hear of, right? But in the real world, suddenly there's more gravitas around that. It's more kind of believable because you start to see yourself in that story far more than, say, you would see yourself in, say, a Spider-Man. Or Superman's yeah. story. It's just entertainment, right? Versus say, holy shit, that thing actually happened and I could never do that thing. This is what you said, right? Like how did these yeah. guys actually pull this thing off? Because the thing with um, with these, uh, well, with the Coast Guard is that the Coast Guard says that you have to go out. They don't say that you have to come back in. So essentially, as you said, this was a suicide mission. So like you, you immediately put yourself in, in, your, in those shoes and you say to yourself, well, what would I do if I was in that situation? You know, like if you think about another one, uh, LA fires, right? Um, the fires that happen yeah. in California and those men, that those incredibly brave men that fight those fires. And there was another film uh, that was, um, that covered, I think there were like 23 firefighters that died fighting a fire out there. Yes. And it's like, so, and like that's another fantastic story of survival, right? Um, and so um, I'm using that preamble to kind of really set up um, the question, which is what characterizes a true hero today versus say someone that's just brave? Uh, that, that, you know, it's a great question. And I, I think today we use the term hero much too loosely. Everybody's a hero. And, you know, so, for example, uh, if I see an elderly person fall down on the railroad tracks and I help them up before the train come, all of a sudden I'm a hero. And that's you're not a hero if you do that. That's just courtesy, common decency. So I think a hero is somebody who goes way beyond their, their job, way beyond the things the rest of us do would do and um and it doesn't have to be life and death situation sometimes it can be somebody just grinding away for years in obscurity helping another person you know that they don't have to do but they they put the time in and grind away so in bernie weber's case in the finest hours i always thought he turned from doing his job and being brave at the moment when he hit the uh it's called the Chatham Bar, a shallow area in the ocean. And the, when these big rollers come in, they break there. And you, you normally can't get through that area. And he tried the first time he lost his windshield. So now you're in the boat. Uh, you, it, by the way, when the water came in, it swept the compass away too. So yeah, I'm putting myself in that, that situation by if that happened to me, I turned back. I could tell my superior, I tried. We lost our windshield. If we go any further, we're probably going to sink because now we can't keep the water out of the vessel and we don't even have a compass. Uh, mm. But he kept trying. He he tried to get over that Chatham bar three different times. And that's where I thought he turned from somebody who was doing his job and being brave 
to going above and beyond in, in being a hero. Great stuff. Um, I've got a few questions coming in from socials. Uh, so this one, obviously, I knew this one was going to come. Uh, but uh, it's from Allison. She says, I'm a huge Chris Pine fan. Have you ever met him while filming? Yes, I, I did. And uh, tell Allison he's just as handsome as uh, he is in the movies. I, I, You know, I was very impressed because he asked a couple questions, you know, Tell me a little bit more about uh, Bernie, What? because Bernie had passed away. And um, I would tell him a, a little bit more. Um, and I also realized how hard these actors work. I was a, an extra in one scene. And they yeah. it was a, the ballroom scene where he's dancing with his fiance. And um, they shot that scene so many times, I couldn't believe it. Why, though? Uh, Why did they reshoot it so many times? They just wanted to get it perfect, um, yeah. you know, just get it just right. And you, you never really, as an audience member watching a movie, you never realize how hard the actors have to work, mm. reshooting and reshooting. And oftentimes a lot of his shots were mimicking the blizzard. So he was wet with waves. They had a giant swimming pool. They rebuilt an oil tanker and a giant warehouse. And it was cold in there. Mm. So uh, I went in once and watched the filming, and I was so cold. I said, okay, I've seen enough. <laughs> that was it. I was having my coffee and donut while these actors are all freezing their butts off. Yeah. Um, so can I get into some of the more um, – sorry, hang on. i get some more questions here. Yeah. Sorry, guys. If I don't get to these, then people get annoyed. Um, <laughs> so hey, Matt and Michael, I'm curious to know. I've read the book and watched the movie. It's different in a way that it doesn't tell the full story as an author. Um, how does this make you feel? So this is the difference then between, yeah, you know. Well, you know what? I, I was fine with the movie because I knew going into it that once you agree and sign over the book to the movie, they can, they can do whatever they want. So it never, it never bothered me. And, you know, the book has five times the information and uh, parts of the other rescue of that other ship I mentioned that the movie doesn't have. So they're, they're very different in that respect. But I did think the movie caught the essence of Bernie Weber, that he's not this superhero, that he was afraid. He had failed in the past, so he had to overcome that past failure. All that, all that was true. Hmm. So um, if I could ask you there's a once i was once given a quote says bravery is being the only one who knows you're afraid um ah. and yeah and it's, it's interesting that one right because and, and really where i'm going with that is how would you describe based on your engagements with uh with bernie and these and these other guys um how would you uh describe then the difference between those who are brave versus those who are courageous what does the story tell us about our ability to activate the best part of ourselves. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, you know, there was a quote by a, a World War II Medal of Honor recipient, and he said, I did not allow my fear to make a coward out of me. So, you know, he's acknowledging that he that he had that fear, but still could perform. And, and that's what I see time and time again. The, you know, the 
On the flip side, some of the survivors I've interviewed, for example, in fatal forecast, a hundred foot wave pitch poles the boat this gentleman was in. There were four men in it. They were about 200 miles off Cape Cod uh, when the storm hit. And only one got out, Ernie Hazard. And so if you could imagine you're all alone, it's November in the North Atlantic, you're in giant seas, and you don't even have a life jacket on. You figure this man has no hope, nothing's ever going to save him. And yet he kept making little steps and little decisions that would keep him alive for another hour. And when you look at the story of Fatal Forecast in total, what he did was he strung together these series of little steps. And soon enough, you get hours into it. And in his case, three days later, he was rescued. So he found the way, the courage, the bravery to keep going when the rest of us would have given up. Mm. How much, uh, uh, how many, or can you recount in 1915 to how, how many, or how, what did these guys earn? Was like income wise? You know, I don't know the exact figure, but I know it was very uh, little because um, they said even the, the clothing we wore on the rescue was hand-me-downs <laughs> from uh, used Navy clothing, and they didn't have the money to go out and purchase a, a better jacket for this winter blizzard. Uh, so they, they weren't making peanuts, and so only of the four rescuers, Bernie was the only one who stayed in the Coast Guard and made it a career. Hmm. So, but what what makes somebody sign up for a job like that? It pays nothing, but your life's totally at risk. What makes someone, what, what motivates somebody to selflessly contribute themselves to a cause like that? You know, it could be, every case is different, but it could be service to the country in a branch of the military where you're not killing people, you're saving people, you know, that appealed to them. Um, and again, I work with rescue swimmers who, who go today and they say, yeah, I, you know, I could have joined a different branch of the military, but I wanted to save people. I wanted to become just as tough as a Navy SEAL, uh, but they're a Coast Guard rescue swimmer. So I, I think it's that element of they know what they're doing is probably at some point in their career going to save a life. Hmm. So one of the things that um, does strike me quite strongly about this particular story is that they put themselves in danger, as we've basically you know, tabled here, uh, to save men that they don't know in incredibly dangerous uh, seas. There was a high probability of them not being able to come back. So they were really focused on rescuing others and uh, bringing them home to their families and all this kind of stuff. And so they weren't and this is the thing why I asked about the remuneration, is that they did all of this while simultaneously not expecting to be rewarded, right, for doing the job even under those circumstances. And so I would love to see more of that sort of value system ingrained in the DNA of our culture as human beings yeah. because it's sorely missing. Um, I'm sure you'll agree with me. And so I wanted to ask you, like, how do we begin to shift the conversation around uh, our culture, and more specifically, how do we bring these kinds of uh, old school values, which are awesome, we've seemingly lost this kind of thing, and how do we activate that in, in modern day culture today? I'm, yeah, I, I wish I had the answer. I do have a couple observations though, and the main thing I see from at that period, interviewing those men and even some of the men and women today in the Coast Guard is this sense of humbleness. When, you know, when I interview them, I say, that's, that's incredible what you did. They would go, no, what we did together. They, they would, they wouldn't hog the glory for themselves. Um, and a, a great example is uh, Bernie Weber, the, the hero of the finest hours, the Coast Guard called him up after the rescue two days later and said, we want to give you the highest honor there is, the gold life-saving medal. And he said, thank you. And what about my crew? And they said, well, we'll give them the silver. And he goes, no, they need to get the same thing I did. They went, they didn't have to go, they volunteered. 
And the Coast Guard said, no, we're not going to do it that way. So Bernie said, forget it. Keep your medal. I don't want it. You don't give my crew the same honor as I did. I'm not accepting. And I thought, man, that took some guts to do that. And also that sense of he didn't want to be uh, hogging the limelight, if you will. And, and I find that that same spirit today in the Coast Guard as well. But it's not it doesn't permeate the rest of society. Everybody else is about, look at me, how great I am, this, 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 and they want to capitalize on what they did, where these people view it more like we're doing our jobs and we're doing it well. Yeah. Um, one of the, I love that idea about empathy because so much of the world is not based on that, right? It's all about like how, how many likes did you, do you have? You know, how big is your community? How big, how big, how big? And if it's not big enough, you're not cool enough. Um, and I think we've kind of lost that, right? That that idea that contribution is not about that. It's about something far greater than vanity or ego. It's about yes. doing something that um, that ultimately is a decision, right? Because if you think about it, fear is a uh, a reaction, but courage is a decision. So decisions is actually where it, where it, where the rubber really starts to hit the road, um, and um, and so. It's, we, we just don't see enough of that today. So I agree with you. I don't think there is a simple answer, but I do believe it starts with you. It's like if you want to see a change, you be that change yourself. So, so I think certainly it's, um, it's a challenge that you know, we, we as a culture and as a society need to take on board in our own individual ways. I've got some more questions here. This one's from Tara. Uh, it's all movie stuff. So this might come across as a silly question, but I'm always so curious when it comes to these movies. How much of it was actually filmed at sea? Ah, uh, great question. Uh, very little at sea. Uh, you'd never know that by watching the movie. Um, and this was the first book I've had made into a movie, so I didn't know what to expect. But they, they filmed it right near my home here in Massachusetts. And most of it was filmed in a giant warehouse where they rebuilt a big oil tanker. Giant, you know, half of an oil tanker, 250 feet long. Uh and then in a swimming pool. And then they use that, um, they call it the green wall behind it, where later they can put in some of the special effects. So while some, you know, there were some shots of the, the vessel at sea that were correct, most of it was shot inside of a, a giant uh, warehouse. And um, it was really something. But, you know, I'll, in another one of my books, you this this is happening at sea. There's a clip of a video. It's on my website, which is just michaeltagaius.com. But on this video, you see an 80-foot wave, wave after wave, 80 feet. And in it is this tiny life raft with three men in it. And you look at this and you go, it looks like a pinprick. How, how are these guys still alive? And how in the world will a rescue swimmer go down into that. So, you know, you'll be able to compare what you see on the finest hours with a video of an actual rescue in 80 foot seas. And you'll just, you'll marvel at how the heck, did, and they pulled off the rescue. That was my book, a storm too soon. Uh, they pulled off the rescue. The, the problem was the rescue swimmer was so exhausted after he got the three men up into the helicopter. He didn't have the strength to swim to the, the hook, if you will, that you would hook on your, your vest to be carried up. Uh, so the, the pilots were worried, we're, we're, we've rescued the uh, people in the raft, but now we've lost our rescue swimmer. And in parts of the video, you hear the pilots going, where is he, where is he, where is he? They, they just can't see him in the waves. Sure. I've actually got um, your website up here, so let's see if we can actually get people a little bit of perspective here. Um, here you go. So this is it here. Um, so I know you can't see my screen, but I'm, I am on your website. Um, yes. So there's a whole bunch of video links here. So there's leadership lessons, strategic decision-making, survive and thrive, and then there's Coast Guard Rescues. Is that what you're talking about, the two videos there? Pro probably under Coast Guard Rescues, you probably see a couple interviews with some of the survivors, and they tell you how they did it. Okay, cool. Let me just post this link up on the chat, guys, and you guys can grab it. Um, for rescue videos. 
Cool. Um, so I think the one of the things that I'm by watching these videos, I'm um, I'm interested to ask you is really about leadership. You know, if you think about the fact that, um, especially now in COVID nineteen, right, we as a society are very much kind of going. I should say more of us as entrepreneurs, it feels like we're going to war every day, right? To kind of make these businesses survive. And there's that word again, it's survive. Like, will my business survive? Or will, and in the case of these Coast Guard rescues, it's like, well, am, are we going to survive? Is the, is the persons in, in, under duress, are they going to survive? So, so there's so many different themes around leadership that connects all of these things together, right? So if you think about the, the, the ship that was in duress, well, as leaders, were they fundamentally, was there wrong decision-making as leaders or the captain of the ship? Did they make, do things wrong that essentially put that uh, crew at risk, if you understand what I mean? Um, and yeah. so what have you learned about leadership qualities uh, or, um, or characteristics that, that really, um, you know, I want us to get practical if we can. Like, what is all these survival stories that you've covered now? Like, what does it tell you about great leadership? What does that look like? You know, oftentimes in my research, that the way it looked was very different than I would would expect. And I'll, I'll give an example. The I wrote a book, Ten Hours Until Dawn, that that where even the Coast Guard vessels, big Coast Guard vessels over 100 feet long are in trouble of going down in this winter storm. And on one of the vessels, I asked, there were 12 men and they said, we all thought we were gonna die because once our, our cutter got knocked over so far, the antennas were underwater. And I said, um, I, said I, I had access to the audio tapes of what they were saying on the Marine radio back to their headquarters. And I said, well, tell me about the, the leader. Was he really uh, a take charge guy and, you know, had everything in place? And they said, no. They said, actually, he was very quiet. And I said, really, for a leader? They said, yes. But they said, by him being quiet, it made us a little calmer. And the way one gentleman explained it, he said, this leader, his name was Glenn Snyder uh, of that vessel, would go from station to station and just ask whoever is operating one piece of equipment, he would just say, is there anything I can do to help? Are you okay? And then he'd go to the next one rather than going to that station and saying, I need you to do this and I need you to do that and you gotta do it right now, which would have made these guys a mess because they were already so afraid. They were young men, only you know, 21, 22 years old. Uh, and so I said, now that's a neat kind of leader. He was not micromanaging. He was just offering his help and assistance and keeping it together. Which, so he set that example. Sure. All righty, cool. So I've got some more questions here. Keep them coming, guys. This one's from Scarlett. She says, hey, guys, uh, just hang on, lost it. Uh, just watched the movie. Um, sorry, now I've missed... Scott, there you go. So she goes, um, I'm just wondering, what's the limitations when making a book into a movie? When you're writing, there's countless pages, but when it's a movie, you only have an hour and a half to tell the story. So how does this process actually work and how much of it involves the author? Great question. So what Disney did, Disney was the, the company that made the movie, is they then, after they got the rights to the book, they then hired um, two screenwriters. And the screenwriters, of course, read the book and started to develop a screenplay because just as that uh, person who asked the question said, they're taking a book of 200 some odd pages and condensing it to an hour and a half movie. And sometimes the authors will have no involvement, sometimes heavy involvement. I'd say mine was was medium, you know, I met with the two screenwriters. There's one scene in the movie that that I wrote. Uh, and I would say of the movie, probably 80% is true and 20% is, is fiction. And I didn't have a problem with that. I knew they'd have to make some changes for the movie as long as they, they caught the essence. So the and you know what's funny is that the uh, movie set the the author is invited to be there, 
but you're invited to observe, not to comment. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. once they start filming, it's not like Michael Tagayas has the power to go, cut, that scene's wrong. <laughs> you can't say a word. By that point, it's in production, and you're not going to be able to change the screenplay, the dialogue, or anything that's happening. So that part was a little difficult, right, to keep my mouth shut during the the filming. But um, I viewed the whole thing as a, a blessing that it's so hard to have a book made into a movie. Uh, so many books are great stories that would make great movies, but only a few get picked. So there is an element of luck. And I was very much aware of that. And so said, I've been very fortunate. I'm going to enjoy the ride. How's it, guys? Just a quick one to say, did you know that due to COVID-19, that the small business sector in South Africa is currently at risk with close to 525,000 formal SMEs locally, employing 6.6 million people. These businesses are at greater risk today than ever before. You know, as a community, we need to do as much as we can to help SMEs succeed and survive during this time. And to this end, I've decided to give away free copies of my number one Amazon best-selling book, You're in the Game Today, which shares the 12 principles that high-impact entrepreneurs, billionaires, and world champion athletes use to overcome the impossible and achieve the extraordinary. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy or maybe share a copy with an entrepreneur that you feel could benefit from this incredible story, please head on over to mattbrownshow.com Hit the Your Inner Game link, put in your details, and we'll deliver a digital copy to you instantly. And for more information, guys, about the book and more developments around the Matt Brown Show, head on over to mattbrownshow.com. So, um, yeah, I guess what I wanted to ask you um, before I get on to some more questions from uh, the social media was um, this idea of... um, strategic decision making um, and, and also I want to ask you about your speaking so I know that you do a lot of speaking and we can come back to the strategic piece in a second but I wanted to kind of ask you this when you do uh, speaking around all these stories especially around these uh, four Coast Guard um, sort of rescue heroes um, what do people respond to most about that story because there's so many different ways to respond to that was well, courage bravery you know it's perspective what do people most respond to when they hear this story you know it, it's hard to say because everybody brings out a different aspect of it uh, some people respond on the, the the teamwork that the four men did you know afraid as can be but still uh stay together as a team and no arguments. And when I speak on it, oftentimes I'll show slides of the real rescue because I know a lot of people in the audience have seen the movie. So I want them to see the the real rescue. So while I'm speaking, I'll put up images from the from the actual rescue. And I think one thing that I've heard time and again is the the rescuers did not feel like it was a su- success. And I'd be like, why? You it was the greatest rescue in Coast Guard history. And they go, No, Mike, you're you're forgetting we lost one guy, Tiny Myers. We could not save him. So it wasn't this complete success. And I thought, wow, yeah, I said I could understand what they meant because they had Tiny Myers in their hands. They were holding on to his arms. They just couldn't drag them into the boat. And by this time, the boat was so crammed with survivors that, um, you know, imagine it's only a 36-foot boat, and they had 32 survivors on board and four crew members. Hmm. That'd be one part of the movie I would change, by the way. They showed the survivors sitting on the bow of the vessel. There's no way that would have happened in giant seas. They were all down underneath in the survivor compartment, wrapped around Bernie's feet, anything to get low, you wouldn't be on the bow. Yeah, fair enough. The bow is the front, if you are wondering, guys. The stern is the rear. <laughs> yeah. I, I spent uh, quite a lot of time on yachts. I crossed the Atlantic, but... Oh, wow. Yeah, but, I don't know, when was this? Uh, probably 14 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, yeah, I got my captain's license for super yachts. We had a... 
a lot of fun in during the, uh, going through the Straits of Gibraltar on that trip. So basically, ah. there was a storm, and it was kind of similar to to what at least I haven't watched the whole movie uh, that um, that they've made about your book. But certainly, I've been in storms where the bow is literally coming up off the sea and then just clattering for hours. And we were on a a hundred and thirty foot super yacht, so it was a big yacht. And uh, wow. when the sea hits that bow, we're all sitting at the back because if you're in the front, it's where you get seasick or you stand the most chance of getting all the seasick. Right. So, um, but when, when that sea hits that bow, and this is a modern yacht, right, the entire thing shakes. It's like you, you're literally in an earthquake like every few seconds. I don't think like the movies never give you that perspective. It's like water rushing in, glass breaking and that kind of thing. But it's like the, the shaking is the thing that really gets you going. I uh, got wow. this this question here from um, Karishma. I think I pronounced your name right. Uh, she said, hey, guys, I'm a huge fan of the movie and Michael's books. He has wrote a ton of books and would like to know, I would like to know, if he had to turn another of his books into a movie, which one would it be? I I think it would be A Storm Too Soon. And, and the reason I say that is you, you kind of jogged my memory um, it, it too is about a, uh, cross Atlantic trip and it, it involves a gentleman from Canada, one from France and one from the UK. So you have these three strangers coming on board this vessel to cross the Atlantic from Florida back to France. And this may make you never do your transatlantic trip again. They, they get caught in the Gulf stream where the waves are going, uh, the wind and the waves are colliding, if you will. So you have the Gulf Stream pushing to the north, but the wind's coming out of the north. And what that does is make them steep. And that's the book where I mentioned the waves get to an incredible 80-foot consistent size, and the boat sinks, and these three men are in a life raft. And I asked the gentleman from Canada, you know, you you probably knew you were going to die. What were you thinking? And he said, you know, I was certain I was going to die. He said, so I was just taking in the majesty of the seas, knowing that few people on earth are ever going to see 80 foot waves while they're in a life raft. And he said, I was just trying to live in that moment, knowing I'm probably going to die, but I could still see the beauty in the waves. Hmm. And uh, he said, when he heard a Coast Guard helicopter in the clouds up above, he couldn't believe it. He never dreamed that anybody could launch into that storm. And that's the one where the rescue swimmer gets in trouble. So I thought that would be an incredible movie because you could follow the life of this rescue swimmer in his big moment. And he pulls off the impossible by getting these three men out of the ocean, but then he doesn't have the strength to rescue himself. Mm. Um, I asked you about strategic decision making uh, just now, and this is actually a talk that you gave because I think it's also it's related to survival. Uh, but the question is actually a little bit off center of the current topic, but I think it's still relevant. It's it's really around the Cuban Missile Crisis and yes. uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, and so, what were the key steps that JFK took to avert uh, nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Boy, he he was incredible. Um, The the book is called Above and Beyond. And the reason I was able to analyze Kennedy's decision making in depth was he, Kennedy secretly audio recorded every meeting he had on the Cuban Missile Crisis. He, He never told the people in the room, his advisors, that they were being secretly audio taped. So I had access to those tapes. And it's interesting, he did not pick advisors who were yes men, like our current president now. He's fired everybody that has a difference of opinion. They're all gone. So he surrounded himself with yes men, which is the worst thing you can do to come up with a good decision. You want to hear all points of view, consider them all, and come up with planning. So in in Kennedy's case, his military right off the bat said, we need to go into Cuba immediately with airstrikes and wipe out all the Soviet troops there and the missiles and their bases uh, because we have the element of surprise. They don't know that we know. And at first, Kennedy was going along with that. They were going to 
do just that, which I think would have caused World War III. But over a two-day period of these meetings, Kennedy's starting to think, well, if we do that, if we go in with airstrikes, there's no turning back. If they strike back, we're immediately into war. Mm. Why not implement our our decision to get the missiles out in steps. So in other words, you're not, it's not all or nothing right off the bat. So what he decided was, if I do a quarantine of the island or a blockade, I'm not attacking the Soviets, but I'm sending the message that there can be no more uh, shipments to Cuba and you have to get the missiles out and we're gonna bring our whole military around the island. So when you look back at that event, you know, a good thing he went that way rather than airstrikes right off the bat, because I think it would have been World War III. And his big concern was, is somebody's going to make a mistake or somebody's going to make a decision without my authorization that uh, puts us on a path to war? And he was worried about this thing getting out of control. And interestingly, in Above and Beyond, I found Premier Khrushchev's uh, son, who was living in the United States, by the way, Sergei Khrushchev. And he told me he was old enough at the Cuban Missile Crisis to remember talking to his father. And he said, that was my father's concern as well, that somebody on the ground was going to make a move without his authorization. And the next thing you know, we're going to be in World War III. And that was not what his father wanted. He wanted to just get those missiles into Cuba without shooting down a U.S. aircraft or sinking a U.S. ship. And, um, and their concerns came true. In, the, in Above and Beyond, you'll see four different incidents where it's either a screw-up or somebody on the ground not following orders that put us on the path to nuclear war. And, boy, it's a great, a great lesson for all of us when you study that book of uh, how close we came and why we need better leadership than we have today. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more around this decision-making. Um, I love what you said, um, but I want to kind of get more kind of insightful around his actual process. So was he, like, I just imagine, right? So the consequences of the decision either way, okay? It's right. like, you know, we're going to be either like in a nuclear war with Russia or we're not. So it's kind of like the stakes are pretty damn high, right? There's, and there's no do-overs with this kind of thing. It's like pressure, you know. Right. Um, and so uh, was he was he data-led or was he in, intuition-led? You know, the, the one thing that Kennedy did was he kept saying during the meetings, he said, well, somebody would give an idea and he would say, well, put yourself in the shoes of the Russians. How will they view this? How will they respond? So he was always playing devil's advocate, if you will, and uh, making these folks look through their decisions, not just what's going to benefit the U.S., but he's looking for a way for Khrushchev to save face too. So, you know, I guess today's terminology we use, how can we come up with a win-win situation rather than me come away with all the chips? Both of us win and, and are able to walk away from the brink. Uh, and oftentimes uh, a military leader in particular, there was this head of uh, the Air Force and Strategic Air Command, his name was Curtis LeMay, uh, was at odds with Kennedy. And he was really in the meetings insubordinate, mm. but Kennedy never threw him out of the meeting because he wanted that differing viewpoint. Even though the guy was rude and insubordinate, Kennedy listened to him. Um, he was just calm and cool and collected. Uh, he did have one one advisor that he really would open up to, and that was his brother, Bobby. Um, mm. Bobby was the, the person who probably knew the most besides the president. And uh, Bobby was the one that made the final offer to the Russians before we really were going to probably go in with airstrikes. He, you know, he said to Bobby, give him this one last deal and tell him we're just hours away from military action. And what was the deal that he put forth? He, so Bobby said uh, to the Russian ambassador, he said, you know, here's, here's the, the final offer, we think. 
he never called it an ultimatum, but that's kind of what it was. He said, if you remove your missiles out of Cuba, we will promise one, never to invade, because the U.S. backed that failed Bay of Pigs invasion, which was an invasion. It didn't work, but we were behind it. So he said, we will promise not to invade. And then two, at a later date, we will remove our nuclear missiles from Turkey, which are right on the Russian doorstep. Um, but Kennedy said, you can't make that part of it public for a couple reasons. Uh, his main reason was that would involve NATO. It would take him some time to get those missiles out of there. But I also think it was for political reasons as well. He would rather not have the American public know that we made this deal to pull our missiles out of Turkey. Mm. And um, both leaders lived up to the agreement. Khrushchev said, okay, I will not make that part of it public. And Kennedy at a later date did pull the missiles out of Turkey. All right, cool. So I've got some more questions coming in. Uh, this one's from Marilyn from Facebook. Good to see you back here. Uh, she says, while writing the book, was there anything you did to sort of get a feel of where these men were mentally visiting the area? Also, was there anything unusual that the men took off the ship when they were saved and that they managed to save? Ah, the, um, the one thing they managed to save, I remember, and this came from Tiny Myers, he had a, uh, a flare gun and he gave it to one of the other crew members and he said, hang on to this. Um, first, he said, you know, I want it after the rescue, we're going to make it. But then later, he must have an intuition that he wasn't going to make it. He said, um, you you keep this. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. So I, I, you know, how he knew, I don't know. But uh, I did visit the area quite a bit. And I was very fortunate because I lived close by. So I've been out there in boats myself many times seen that that dangerous area called the Chatham Bar. It, it's always good to visit the area you're writing about to get a, mm. a feel for it. Um, although in some of the, you know, like a storm too soon, you wouldn't get me going across the Atlantic in a sailboat because I've, I've yeah. researched too many scary stories. I'm, I'm a big chicken. <laughs> so I won't go that far. And, you know, another one, uh, you know, fatal forecast where, Ernie was working on an offshore lobster boat 200 miles out to sea. One of the people on the other vessels in the uh, fatal forecast story said, well, why don't you come with us? And I said, well, how long will we be out? And he said, a week. And I said, you're crazy. <laughs> there is no way I'm going 200 miles out on the ocean for a week in a little boat yeah. pulling lobsters. But, you know, he, he, he offered, he said, well, if you're researching the book, this will really help. And I said, that... It's okay. I'll ask you questions. I don't need to go. <laughs> yeah, I know. I let my imagination do the rest of the work, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, was there anything that – I'm just going to wrap up now. Um, is there anything additional to what we've discussed that surprised you or has surprised you about covering these survival stories? Anything, any a point or insight that you feel is really critical that you want our audience to, to think about? You know, it's interesting that survivors come in all shapes and sizes, you know, and in the beginning, the one I mentioned, Ernie Hazard, with the boat pitch pulled in those hundred foot waves, he kind of fit my image of a survivor. He was a big, strong man, uh, you know, very powerful. But then as I did book after book, I realized they come in all shapes and sizes. One of the toughest was from the book Overboard. And he was not a big, strong man, and he was actually very uh, soft-spoken, uh, was, was not, um, you know, strong. And yet, mentally, this soft-spoken man was as strong as uh, steel, because uh, he kept saying to himself, just hang on a little bit longer. And he would think of his 13-year-old daughter, and that would give him motivation to fight a little harder because he knew she needed a father, and because uh, he would have given up. And um, I was just doing a young adult version of the book about the sinking of the Indianapolis in World War II. That was the ship where most of the crew was, was killed by sharks after it sank. But uh, the, the doctor on the boat made a, 
an observation. He said, I noticed that the men who were fighting the longest and resisting the temptation to drink seawater were the ones that had families. So they were fighting for somebody beyond themselves. Mm. That's very interesting. That's very interesting because that's going to be my last question to you in a second. But I just want to add to what you said. I think, you know, we're talking about survival, uh, you know, people being like the Chilean miners, right? They survived that whole story, those 33 men. Um, and then you've got these four dudes, 32 sailors. Um, and so we talk about these very dramatic, you know, kind of stories that we make movies about, you know. Uh, but I think uh, all of us, you know, are survivors. That's what, that's what I believe. It's like if you had yeah. a lot of debt and you became debt-free, you're a debt survivor. If you have two kids like I do and you survive them, you survived your kids. <laughs> you know, if, you, uh, if you're a, a, like digital kung fu, like my company, you know, we survived the, the, the dark early days that all startups have to survive. You know, and, um, and, you know, I think the point I want to make to our viewers all around the world here is that, you know, you are a survivor. Think about what you have survived in your life. Think about through that suffering, the meaning that it gave you, how much growth you experienced as a human being. And to recognize what you are surviving today and what you are likely to survive in, in the future. And recognize that because that's true power. That's, that's a, a perfect way to view it. And I think sometimes we're, we're too hard on ourselves. Um, you know, we, we might be looking for praise from a boss or a spouse or a coworker when in fact that praise should come from within. And I'll, I'll close with the story I said to Ernie Hazard from Fatal Forecast, who was in that life raft for three days, I said, you're being tumbled in the ocean. Um, what, what were you doing? And he said, I was talking to myself a lot. And I said, well, give me an example. And he said, if I just made a good move, like found a new position that would make the raft more stable. He said it sometimes even out loud. I'd go, good job, Ernie. Just keep doing what you're doing. Good job. And I think we all need to give ourselves pats on the back. We're, like you say, we've all survived some things. We've probably forgotten about them. And so when the next thing comes around, we might feel overwhelmed. But if you look back, you go, you know what? We've been through some pretty crazy stuff. Somehow we'll figure it out again. And don't be so hard on yourself. Give yourself some credit. Talk to yourself. Say, good job, Mike. You did it. Yep. And we don't give ourselves enough credit here. Yes. We really don't. Uh, Michael, let's uh, wrap this up. Why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I think it's the challenge in this kind of uh, inner drive to to make sure these stories uh, get told. It was funny, just the other day, I was telling my daughter, here's all these different books I've got researched. Uh, I'm 65 years old. I'm not going to get to them all, but you pick out the ones that you think you may want to tackle in the future because the research is done and the story needs to be told. So if you know any of your audience wants to order a book and I can personalize it for a gift, they can get it at the Michael Tagayas uh, website if it's in the, the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I have a shipment here in the U.S. So it's spelled uh, T-O-U-G-I-A-S. And it, it's that need to tell stories. I'm a storyteller. I don't have many other talents. So that's, that's what gets me driven and up in the morning. Cool. Well, amazing stuff. Um, and I'm just uh, showing a screen share here of all the other books that you've written here. A Storm Too Soon, 10 Hours Until Dawn, Overboard, Into the Blizzard, and an end. So um, tons of material here for you guys to get into. Uh, and thank you, all of you, for joining the stream. It's been a, a great show. Michael, Special thanks to you. Thank you for telling your story and for making yourself available today to basically help you know our audience understand what it really means to survive today. So thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure, and thank you all for the great questions from from everybody. Really much appreciated. Cool guys, we'll see you again soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Mac Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, your inner game for free right now today. You can grab that on mathbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.